Well, hello there, everyone, and welcome to Timeline Scavengers, the podcast specifically designed to last forever. I'm Colin Parker, one of your hosts. And I'm James Anderson, your other host. On this show, we're going through the MCU in historical order, scene by scene, until the end of time. That we are, James. Now let me in. Yep. Uh, Hey, you know, it's funny that you said that because that's a lot of what this episode is about. Uh, And also, one of the interesting things about this episode uh, is that it is, I think, one of the longest segments we've had so far. Mm -hmm. Um, So this is for Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. Season 7, Episode 2. You're going to start your clock at 30 minutes and 58 seconds and end at 6 minutes and 40 seconds. Mm-hmm. We almost go a full three minutes, which is wild to think about. Yeah. Um, Especially when you realize how much I have to tell you about. Uh, (laughs) So we're going to immediately dive into that, I think, because it's it's a bit of a scene. Daisy is thumbing through the mystery woman's effects. Coulson is lightly applying pressure to the wound. Koenig walks up and he says, you guys aren't in the import-export business, are you? Colson says, all you need to know right now is that we're here to help. Koenig immediately goes from zero to a hundred by going, oh, help my ass. It's been nothing but trouble ever since you two showed up. If anything happens to Freddy, before he can even finish, Daisy interrupts him with a, he should be so lucky. Real sass coming out of this one right now. Um, and he's, what did he ever do to you? The most aggressive but non-threatening sounding knock of my life is heard from the main entrance to kind of cut the tension here. (laughs) Um, And they show a majority of Koenig's walk over to the door, which is also a weird choice. Uh Like It's literally like three quarters of the trip from the bar to the door before they finally cut away. And I can't explain that either. Um, So he's always like, hey, I'm going to do something funny on the walk. Keep keep filming me. Keep going. And they're like, you didn't do anything. He's like, you didn't see it? All right, well. All right, well. Should we keep it He's like, actually, I thought it would be funny if I tripped, but then last second I said, no, (laughs) I'm not going to do that. But they just kept the whole thing. Anyway, so he opens a little eye slot, right? And he says, buzz off, we're closed. Simmons, very fed up already, says, swordfish, in the most, like, lackluster tone I've ever heard. And then, now let us in. Koenig, here's the thing. He, He kind of says that, but it's not very loud. But he embodies that word entirely, like his entire body, like uh, language, is the word "ugh" as he lets them in. Um, Just I want to be so, clear that was me uh, falling ever deeper in love with Simmons. Now maybe he and I oh, had gotcha. are sharing something, but uh, yeah, I, I think he kind of like sighs and then is like "ugh," yeah. But like I think you're more like "ugh," yeah, oh, exactly. Yeah. Also, he's like Daisy has just I'm going to use the verb mouthed mouthed off to him, but like. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's like oh, no, absolutely. another another one. Huh? Oh, it's yeah, don't you worry. Don't you worry. We're gonna get to that. <laughs> they walk in, they just completely ignore Koenig, right? They walk right past him. We came as fast as we could. We had to change. Yo-Yo says, and ran in high heels, which isn't easy. I don't know how you people live like this, which I think is also very funny yeah. to like the agent lifestyle and like how many comic book characters are always portrayed. Um, so Simmons asks how the woman is. Colson's like, we need to get her fixed up before she can be moved to a hospital. Daisy's like, whoa, not before we get some answers. Koenig frantically re-enters the scene like, whoa, 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 whoa. You're going to operate here? Simmons is like, well, we got to remove the bullet. Koenig then reminds us that we are still in 1931 by saying, "Uh, just what I need, a dead body in here because some dame. And before he could get another word out, Simmons puts her foot down and is like, I'm a doctor, not a dame. Koenig 
very sheepishly just kind of goes, well, just clean up afterwards. And he sulks <laughs> away. And he sulks away going, I'm going to get on the horn to see if I can get the lowdown. Yo-Yo asks what's going on. And Coulson's like, okay, listen, here's the deal. We know why Freddy's the target. Last name, Malik. Malik? As in, yeah, Hail Hydra. Uh, you know, again, just very, you know, putting the sass on. Um, <laughs> it's my second so, favorite and, reading of Hail Hydra that she ever does. Uh, mm-hmm. We're not going to get to the, my first favorite for a while. It's when she- for a while, yeah. Oh, gotcha. <laughs> um, so you're you're right. Uh, and then, uh, nope, that's not a name. Colson uh, is like, hey, I'm getting into the mood of 1931, and says, ain't that the cat's pajamas? So they continue to debrief as we see Simmons expertly pulling a bloody bullet out of the woman and drop it into a shot of whiskey that just so happens to be on the countertop. Um, Back to the debrief. Uh, If Hydra doesn't form, then S.H.I.E.L.D. doesn't form in response. Daisy's like, because it doesn't have to. Think of all the future lives we'll save if there's no Freddie Malik. Coulson, the robot who just fought three other robots in front of multiple eyewitnesses, reminds them that they can't disrupt the timeline. Um, If we take Malik out, something worse uh, could rise up in his place. Well, we'll deal with that when we get back, right? To a future we won't recognize, Simmons says. Killing Malik was the uh, Chronicom's intent. They do know the consequences. Daisy points out that they know what happens if he lives. Yo-Yo is like, okay, but why does it have to be live or die? Can't we just be a positive influence on him? You know, a real big brother's big sister sort of situation. Simmons immediately shoots that down, though. He's like, listen, technically that would still kill the historic Malik that has no heart. Uh, this is not a Grinch story, you know, in this one. <laughs> right. um, Koenig tells them that they need to disappear. The word is out. Coppers are swarming every gin joint looking for Freddy. They talk about moving the woman. She's stable enough. Coulson calls Enoch and says they're coming back. They need to reach Mac. Uh, Enoch explains that maybe he can find a way to extend the range of the radios. And I love this scene because they need to have something happening when they cut back to the people in the bar. So when they do, immediately... Koenig recognizes that he's holding a device that's not a telephone uh-huh. and is hearing a voice coming from somewhere and keeps looking at the walkie-talkie and then looking around the room <laughs> as if, like, where is that coming from and is so confused but never asks a single question about it. Right. Um, which is another interesting acting choice. Um, so he's looking around that, like, kind of looking for, like, where it's coming from. Enoch then tells them that May is up and already active. Simmons is like, absolutely the fuck not sedate her and put her back in the healing pod um once again back in the bakta tank you go right and he says i will do my best but she doesn't seem to be in the mood to take orders um so i thought that was a it's a very you know action-packed uh scene really absolutely because like it it moves fast Mm -hmm. but like it's three minutes basically um but this was very interesting to me because i was wondering We've talked about, you know, when could women go to college and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. Well, the same sort of situation is here, right? She's like, I'm a doctor. And he's kind of like, okay, fine. But I was like, okay, I'm not trying to be a piece of shit, but I'm wondering when could women become doctors? Right. Because he doesn't seem to fight it, but also he doesn't immediately fall into the line of thinking that she could be one. So it's like, how rare would this be? Right. Um. So it's pretty wild. Uh, you know, I'm going to go through a very brief history of it because I just think it's interesting. Absolutely. Um, so this is um, from uh, something called the Saturday Evening Post. Yep. Uh, and this is the fight for women doctors. Um, 
So the first little blurb here is just that. Though the first woman in the U.S. to earn a medical degree graduated in 1849, it would take more than a century for doctor to become an acceptable career move for women. So that kind of already sets the tone here. Uh, and unfortunately, we're going to get into another bit of bad tone. In May of 1849, a New York paper called the National Era reported that Elizabeth Blackwell graduated from medical school. Here's a quote from the editor. Some of our male readers may be... I'm going to read it in an old-timey voice, just so everyone knows it's not me. Right. Some of our male readers may be astonished to see an MD attached to the name of one of the gentler sex, the editors wrote. But we hope the time will come when an American woman at least can follow any honorable professional occupation without exciting the surprise of anyone. Now, that part is fine, I think. Right. But it's weird that they're like, the name of one of the gentler sex, oh, male readers, turn your eyes away. Yeah. It's like, what the fuck is that all about? Uh, but then they're like, oh, but also women, yes, good job. Get out there. Well, um, it's it's weird because yeah. it's the one of the things that I think what people have a hard time with with feminism is that they thought by calling them the gentler sex that they were being kind and right. chivalrous. And so to have people be like, that's ridiculous that you're calling them that. They're like, why? It's nice. I'm saying nice things about them. Just like when I said that uh, you have a nice face and, and can. Like, it. they think that they're doing fine, so they get very upset when they're called on it. Yes. So she might have been the first uh, woman in the U.S. to graduate from medical school. But her achievement barely opened the doors of the medical profession to women. Uh, immediately, Dr. Blackwell found herself blocked from practicing at any hospital or clinic in New York City. In order to apply her medical ed education, she had to open her own clinic for impoverished women. Which, I mean, don't get me wrong, that's pretty tight. Absolutely. But it also shows that, like, you know, she got the same accolades to, you know, to be, you know, again, like, in the same field as these other men. And they're like... Oh, hey, thanks for doing all that hard work. No. Right. Um, so, yeah, kind of a, a shit, you know, uh, situation to be in. The cool thing is, though, is that she later on was joined by two other women doctors to expand the clinic, creating the New York Infirmary for Women and Children in 1857. Now, I think that the big thing is that for the most part, kind of like they were saying earlier, it's going to take about 100 years before it really becomes a big thing. Right. Um, so it's past 1931. However, we did see initially... The first time that women became interested in medicine from tending the wounded started during the Civil War, and mm -hmm. it started um, applying to these schools in the 1870s. Right. Over time, the number of women in America rose 347%, which is huge. So by 1880, there was over 2,000 women practicing medicine in America. But again, kind of like this, the previous situation, they still had... A bunch of obstacles that they had. I mean, the big thing just being that male colleagues were just not willing to cooperate with them. Right. They would refuse to allow a doctor to attend their clinical trainings and hospital wards uh, or to join their medical societies. Some refused to even work with nurses trained by women doctors, which is, you know, again, just a whole new level of, uh, of stupid. You know, yeah, stupid and sexism <laughs> and everything. Okay. Well, anyway, that's all that I have for this episode. I mean, there's a lot that happens. Uh, some cool, interesting information on, you know, women doctors. Absolutely. Like that, absolutely. Thank you for, for doing all the research. That's, uh, that's, and you know what? I looked to see if yeah. there was a Sabon, Sabon's episode about her. Nope. Breaking new ground, Colin. Breaking new ground. Take wow. that. Wow. 
Wow, take that, uh, McElroy family. Like, um, Got the drop. You know what's going to be really funny is that this episode won't come out for another couple weeks, and like in like one of those two weeks, they're going to drop an episode on Honor, and we're going to look like fucking fools. But anyway. And you know what? That's fine. More power to her. I would like to say that the next thing I want to bring up before Music of 1931, Gemma and, and Yo-Yo show up in their 1931 costumes and i'd like to talk about them for a second it's weird to be like women doctors women are subjugated whatever anyways let's talk about what they're wearing let's talk about their fashion yeah (laughs) but i would like to remind you that we did this for the men when they got to go first yes and daisy and daisy yeah yeah. okay so um we have Gemma who shows up looking like freaking uh professor mcgonagall with her like witch's hat kind of thing and like a full like like overcoat um it's like the the female equivalent of a bowler hat honestly you know it really is it's sort of it's, it's sort like, of compact it is pointed though um is it i thought it was rounded i think well hold on i have a picture i pulled up a picture here hold it's on. very similar to a bucket hat almost in a way it's, okay it's it looks like actually you know what it is it's a fedora she's wearing a fedora yeah here let me send you this so yeah send me a picture it's it's a it, she's wearing it almost as crooked as uh, Mac wears his almost because otherwise it would be falling off her head. You know what it is? It's an Agent Carter hat. You know, basically, it is an agent. But I, yeah, I think you're. Exactly I think right. the Agent Carter hat. I think has a slightly wider brim. Yeah, but it is it is it is basically Agent Carter. Yep, I agree with that one hundred percent. And she's English. You you know what? You're absolutely right. Oh, you're right. She is. Oh, that's so. Oh yeah. Okay. Yeah, I like I like that a lot. She took that from. She was like, "Oh, she's British. I'm yeah, British. Exactly. I'll wear her." Well, hat. don't you think that makes total sense? Gemma would have revered Agent Carter. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Uh, so then we have Yo-Yo, and I think that what Yo-Yo is wearing is very interesting. Yes, she has on um, kind of like she has a collared a collared shirt. And it's sort of a salmon colored. And then she has kind of like a scarf. It's not mm-hmm. a tie. It's not an ascot. It's like a scarf. And then kind of a black jacket over that. Um, and then she has a, a like a, a knit cap. Am I wrong? Yeah. Is that? No, you're right. Yeah. It. You know, it could be actually in this one picture. It. I think it's one of those 1920s, like, we wear basically like a helmet for like flappers. That, yeah. Um. It looks like it, a knit cap, though, and it, in silhouette, the thing is, for sure. It's, looks- it's kind of like a knit cap, but it has a headband yeah. on it. Yeah, exactly. Um, exactly. So it's it's like, I think it's like that they weren't really fitted. Yeah. Almost. But, but yeah, it's, it is, it is, uh, the thing is, I think it literally is just a hat that I've never seen outside of the 1930s. And with that <laughs> hair, she, she looks like, yes. like, um, uh, uh, little Stevie from Bruce Springsteen, like, she, like how he always wore like the huh. headscarf and stuff. Yeah, like I want to know. So here's what I, know. I mean. Wow. <laughs> the the problem is you said that, and I went back to the picture, and now unfortunately that's all that I can picture. Listen, I think they both look great. I want to I know if Yo-Yo is wearing the costume that Yo-Yo is wearing because of her skin color, and if she's tr- if like there's a there's a, there's a um, a Latin, Hispanic, or even like Romani, 
like if they're if they're addressing the fact that she is not white i you know the thing is like i had thought that as well like when they first walked in like i remember watching the scene and going hmm seems a lot like you know they are kind of like addressing a very different uh what's the word for it like expectation yeah you know like like um, uh, w- weaving her ethnicity into the costume which yeah isn't isn't wrong but they don't talk about it at all which maybe they don't need to i just think it's an interesting question to 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 consider i think it's i mean honestly again i think it's just like a matter of like we're going to fit in and we're just going to you know do this thing and like that might just be like the costume folks going let's be historically accurate we, we've and already given like two... the characters not knowing that that there's an active decision there you right. know what I mean? and and yeah that we've already done two like how they gave deke like a newsboy look because they'd already done two suit and ties with hats like correct yeah okay yeah that's that's right they're like listen we've only got so many crooner style looks that we can do <laughs> exactly exactly We've got 30 of the same fucking car on set. We can't have 30 of the same suits on set. <laughs> the guy who rents out the cars also rents out the suits. And he's like, hey, come on now. He's like, hey, yeah, let me go get my brother and does that thing where you pretend to walk <laughs> down behind the counter. And he puts on a different hat and he comes back up and goes, hey there, my brother said you were looking for some some suits. He gets in the passenger side of the car and gets out the or gets in the driver's side of the car, gets out the passenger side and pretends to be a yeah. different person. Yeah. With a fake mustache and everything. Exactly. Um, okay, so I have a real quick ni- music of 1931. Okay. Um, it then is real quick. Do it by Blind Willie McTell. Okay. And it's called Georgia Rag. Now, at first, I could not find this song, and then eventually, I found that that was because Blind Willie McTell recorded this as Georgia Bill. So I realized that this is audio, so no one in the audience could see me. Do like a head tilt and look at you like why? It was the most needle scratch moment I think I've ever experienced in my life. Haha, <laughs> <laughs> ha, needle scratch because right? uh, they would all be vinyl. Yeah. Exactly. Um, okay, so I wanted to talk about the word rag and what it means musically and what it doesn't mean musically. So the rag. As in ragtime, it was a modification of the march mm-hmm. made popular by John Philip Sousa with additional polyrhythms coming from African music. It was usually written in 2-4 or 4-4 time with a predominant left-hand pattern of bass notes on strong beats 1 and 3 and chords on weak beats 2 and 4 accompanying a syncopated melody in the right hand. According to some no- according to some sources, the name ragtime may come from the ragged or syncopated rhythm of the right hand. And then a rag written in three-fourths time is a ragtime waltz. So that's what we'd be expecting to hear when we when we drop the needle on Georgia Rag. However, we don't it's hear that. that. That's not it. Um, I found a one of the only places I found reference to this song, because it's a basically a B-side released by OK Records. Uh, it says in 1932, but maybe they released a different version in 1931. Uh, the style it has okay Piedmont Blues or country blues. Mm-hmm. So Piedmont or East coast or Southeastern blues refers primarily to a guitar style, which is characterized by a finger picking approach in which a regular alternating thumb bass string rhythmic pattern. Oh, in pattern supports a syncopated melody using the treble strings generally picked with the forefinger, occasionally others. The result is comparable in sound to ragtime or stride piano styles. Blues researcher Peter B. Laurie coined the term, giving co-credit to fellow folklorist Bruce Boston, 
Bruce Baston, the Piedmont style is differentiated from other styles, particularly the Mississippi Delta Blues, by its ragtime-based rhythms. Almost like how, like, Trenchtown Rock is a reggae song. Yeah. It's like, it has the, it refers to a style of music that it takes some stuff from, but isn't necessarily an example of. Right. Um, and then Country Blues is basically, as opposed, it's Country Blues, Folk Blues, Rural Blues, Backwoods Blues, or Down Home Blues is as a, as opposed to urban blues, which is sort of performed in cities, like like a Chicago right. sort of blues style. Chicago wasn't around yet. I don't the think band, they were uh, around. Yeah, well, they, hadn't, the, they hadn't, certainly hadn't added the horn section yet, for sure. Yeah. <laughs> I'm glad that you knew exactly what I meant, because I, I realized that that's a wild thing to say, because surely <laughs> the city was around. So I'm glad that you picked up on that immediately. If you, if you listen back, and maybe it's just you, because you'll probably edit this, you'll hear me be like, eh, band, okay, yes, I got it. I'm, <laughs> <laughs> okay, cool, cool. Uh, so uh, some people that do country country blues are Blind Lemon Jefferson from Texas, Charlie Patton from Mississippi, and Blind Willie McTell from Georgia. Um, they were the first among the first to record these kind of blues songs in the 1920s. So I think primarily it's a Piedmont blues because it, it has that ragtime mm-hmm. style, but it's sort of maybe under the larger umbrella of country blues because it like a Scott, like actually it's so funny, like a, like, a Bob Marley song that's a ska song you'd also put under reggae, even though right, it, it's it's sort even of different. Though ska technically came before reggae, right? But everyone exactly. Thinks reggae came right, before exactly. Ska. Yeah. Anyways, so that is uh, Georgia Rag. It is very enjoyable, um, and we're gonna put it on the playlist. I don't have, I couldn't find like any details about it, um, but I thought it was interesting that it was like Georgia Rag. It's a Piedmont blues. It's like wait a minute, that's that's something else. So that is all I have for music of 1931. We have a Twitter handle for this show, and it is at Timeline Scav. Whoa. Uh, if you want to go uh, sort of the, that's our sort of specific genre. If you want to go a larger genre, we're on the Scavengers Network, which you can find on Twitter at Scavengers Net. Whoa. S- some performers of Scavengers Net, the genre, are uh, me, who you can find on Twitter at Unabashed James. Uh, and that is from uh, Virginia. Uh, a Louisiana example currently is Colin, who is at. Colin M. Parker. Perfect. Whoa. <laughs> I've just been saying whoa with every single one of these ladder and ladder every time. <laughs> well, now you're going to have to say a big, a big old whoa uh, for the next one, because uh, across the across the pond in the UK, we have Nick Bramald, uh, who is at N. Bramald or NickBramaldComposer.co.uk, who composed the music that you hear on this show that makes it sound so nice. Um, big so, ol' whoa. A big ol' whoa. <laughs> B-O-W, bow wow. <laughs> so, let me tell you a little bit about the Patreon. It is at patreon.com slash the scavengers network. And for $2 a month, you can get access to all sorts of bonus content. And that is including and especially featuring the Timeline Scavengers annual number one colon 1931 I ran a game of masks with Colin and uh, Morgan and Daniel and uh, Tracy. Um, at this point, you've heard Morgan and Tracy and Colin on the show. We'll get Daniel on eventually. They, I need to, I need to find sort of their wheelhouse of what they like. It's it's a lot of fun. We played uh, basically they played characters of Agents of Shield, and I tried to destroy them. But the real fun thing, quake, quake. Um, the real fun thing is that uh, we released we we made we had t- 
two covers for this quote unquote comic book uh, commission. We commissioned two covers. One we released on our social media and you can find that uh, on our Twitter. And then the other one is a Patreon exclusive alt cover, uh, an alternate cover. And you can find that, you can only find that if you join the Patreon for $2 a month. They are both amazing and have little things that I keep finding like, oh man, that that's so cool that they did that, or that's so cool that they did that. Um, so uh, I hope that you will join the Patreon if you are not already a patron. Whoa! <laughs> that's going to do it um, for our... Uh, this episode, and I, I like, I can hear in my head the bum 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 bum. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's gonna do it for us for today. Uh, this has been a, an excellent episode of a very long scene, a very wonderful scene. As always, I am James Anderson, and I'm Colin Parker. I'm not a typical sign-off. I'm an Excelsior. Are you a fan of Boy Meets World? Do you enjoy rewatch podcasts? Well, then you should check out The Lost Years, a retrospective fan cast hosted by me, Tay. And me, Sid. It's my favorite show of all time. And I've never seen it. Each week, we're recapping a new episode of Boy Meets World, sharing bits of nostalgia and learning a wholesome lesson. Join us on our rewatch journey, won't you? School's in session every Tuesday, wherever you find your podcasts. What else do you need to know? The Scavengers Network. Creator-driven. Community-focused. Treasured content.